HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number six by the Legion of Dudes. The world will look up and shout, save us. And I'll whisper. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dude, I will come over there and kick your robot head right off of that skinny body. Holy crap, dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. Dude, you're not going to believe what Cartman has. Hepatitis B? It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Screw you guys, I'm going home. And now, here's the dudes. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. It's six minutes to midnight, and... It's a half-hour wasted presents Who Reads the Watchmen, issue number six. We're halfway through, thank God, by the Legion of Dudes. Hey guys and gals, this is Adam Umack uh, of the Legion of Dudes. I am joined alongside my buddies for our weekly play date into the world of being a man-child. Uh, it's Legion of Dudes. Go ahead, guys. Johnny M. I'm Russell Latham. I'm Ken Morgan. And I'm Jim Dietz. And uh, thanks uh, a million, one and all, for uh, sending your comments to comments at legionofdudes.com. Check us out at the Half Hour Wasted Forum at thecomicforums.com. Uh, be sure to check out Brad and Frank's podcast, A Half Hour Wasted, every Sunday. And the Legion of Dudes every Thursday. Um, go ahead, take it, guys. I guess I could start off with some comments from issue five that we have um, before we get into the discussion topic for today. So <clears throat> got a few comments from, from issue five and, and we'll do some, some issue six pre-show stuff after, after the, the discussion. Um, from Darth BX, we, we have uh, Melville Smith. I love the avatar best one of the year. Another great episode gang. But before I go any further, I must defend one of my favorite heavy metal slash thrash bands, Guar. They are not just a gimmick. They can actually play, and yes, they are still around, which says a lot in and of itself, considering that most bands haven't been around for 20-plus years. They played NYC a few weeks back, and I was so sorry I missed them. I also recommend checking them out live if you get the chance. It's something every geek should experience in person. If you're into metal and you've dismissed them as a gimmick, band, shame on you. Back to Watchmen. Dr. Manhattan. Hold, can you hold on one second, Russ? Yeah. I, I think we we might need to do like a little self inventory if if we do a two hour show on the Watchmen and come back with a guar comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's kinda like all I I went to uh I went to the Watchmen show and all I got was this guar comment. <laughs> but thank you, Dog BX. And continue. I'm sorry, Russ. That's all right. Back to Watchmen. Dr. Manhattan, Cradle Robber. Is it just me or does Dr. M really like them young? What do you guys think of the reviews of the movie from the preview screens? Do you think the movie audience will get The Watchmen? Will it be embraced by movie audiences the way it's been embraced by comic book readers? I ask this because it was remarked upon during the episode how some people don't get the book, and from what we've seen, the movie is almost a straight translation. So what do you guys think? I think we discussed a lot of that in our Meet the Dudes episode last week. Yeah, we did. You know, again, it, it'll it'll be interesting. It it, it looks like he's going to be pretty true to the to the material. Um, the last uh, what was it? The Scream Awards? Is that is that what was on the? Um... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. They did add some content, and it seemed like everything they added to the trailer 
was like shot for shot stuff from the yep. book. So it's going to be pretty, pretty true to the material, I think. Whether mainstream audiences embrace it, you know, that's yet to be seen, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I thought about this question a little bit, and, and I'm, I'm less concerned so much with whether or not the audience or the people quote unquote get it, and more concerned that it inspires discussion. And if, if, if it's debate, not debated, but if, it, if the movie's discussed by whoever, you know, forums, people online, groups of friends who go see it, if they discuss it and they analyze it at least to some degree and pick it apart just to, to help them understand it, that's important. If you go see it and then you forget about it, you know, you'll see it for three hours and then it's out of your mind, then, then it wouldn't be a success. But if it sticks with you, that's, that's going to be a, a sign of, the good, of a good movie. Yeah, agreed. All right, moving on. Caliban, one of our loyal posters on the, on the forum, one other thing about the text piece from Issue 5. After Watchmen, Alan Moore would go on to work with Joe Orlando on a fran- Phantom Stranger story in Secret Origins 10. Max Headroom writes, Another great episode, dudes. As brilliant as number five was with the mirror images and panels, number six is the issue of the series. And I think I think we hear a lot of that, and I think even amongst ourselves we kind of think the same way, that, that issue six is is it. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we did get an email. Is that right, John? I think I think you have that up and ready. Yes, uh, we have an email again from Jesse, who's uh, another loyal listener and, and commenter of ours. And Jesse says, uh, "Here's a question for the panel: You are all rereading the book while you are doing the podcast. A couple of you are reading this for the first time. Here's my question: Will you reread it again before going to see the movie, or will you wait and reread it after watching the movie?" I'm thinking of doing both. I'll reread a week before the movie comes out. Then I'll know. Then I know I'll want to read it again, or at least skim parts after seeing the movie. Keep up the great job. Again, that's from Jesse. I haven't thought about that much. I'm, after this read through and the the job that we're doing of you know really breaking down every chapter, I'll probably wait until afterwards before I check it out again. I'll probably read it beforehand just to kind of refresh my memory of uh, of the fine details because I will want to look for those. Um, I will probably see the movie twice, once to really enjoy it, once to really pick it apart. Uh, as far as after we read it again, we'll see what my, my movie experience is. If I'm going to do that, I don't know. Right. I'll, I'll probably read it after. I, I, I'm kind of like with John. I think after after the going in depth through this thing like we are, I don't, I, I don't see myself, because we'll finish pretty close to when the movie comes out, so I don't see myself going back there and reading the whole thing again. But I think after the movie, I think I'll be all hopped up about it hopefully and i'll probably come back and read it again and, and just to you know get a get a different perspective after seeing the movie you know since we're um on the subject of reading the uh material adam you picked up that watching the watchman you you were pretty impressed by that uh that book huh yeah i posted that on the main uh, cgs forums i think it you know kind of warranted a, a bigger audience for that um and our discussion topic that Russ is uh, going to take in a second here is uh, merchandise for the Watchmen. This is, uh, you know, published by DC, and uh, Chip Kidd uh, was the uh, designer and whatnot that we spoke about before. Um, it's it's pretty complete. I would say that I probably wouldn't buy this if we we weren't doing this podcast. But I really have a larger attachment to Watchmen now, and you know, our group at large. I would say um, it's retailing for thirty nine ninety nine, and this is uh, Dave Gibbons' uh, memories, his recollections of how Dick Giordano approached him at uh, the San Diego Comic Con to do Alan Moore's story, Watchmen, along with uh, the Superman uh, story that he and Alan Moore worked on as well. It takes you from 
that initial meeting with Giordano all the way toward when he worked with John Higgins when they recolored Watchmen in 2005 for the Absolute Edition's first printing. Um, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty sprawling. It covers, you know, all of those years leading up to Watchmen and plus the two-year time period it took for him to crank all the pencils, letters, and inks out for all the pages. Uh, it takes you through uh, putting together not only characters' designs, but the really complex process they went through for not only color separations, but also for putting together fearful symmetry. A lot of the internal memos from DC, as uh, from, from DC Brass as publishers, and also from DC Editorial, was that it seemed to me that all the higher ups were immensely impressed with the first issue, but I don't think that they realized the scope, which Jim, you know, has spoken to in earlier episodes of how amazing what, you know, Watchmen truly is. It covers uh, memorabilia, convention sketches. And uh, if, if you're a real art guy, like I am, um, I would definitely recommend this, but there's enough weight to the book. <laughs> it is oversized, but there's, there's enough to the book that I think anybody could appreciate it. But, I had said, you know, is this just a glorified sketchbook? It very well may be that, but I'm okay with it. It's it's a nice package uh, altogether. It's a good, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I flipped through it, and where I'm a little hesitant to buying, um, you know, licensed properties, like uh, for movies, like I wasn't really impressed with the Art of 300 book that came out, but um, I, I would consider getting the Watchmen one, though. Is um, I assume Alan Moore had nothing to do with it? The only thing Alan had to do was um, with this is uh, Dave gives uh, Alan and John Higgins thanks in the introduction. Otherwise, you see just a few pages from issue one, page one, dead carcass, da 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 da, right? A dead dog carcass, run over, stomach run over, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's notes from different phone conversations he and Alan had. It talks about, yes, the original art, and actually, um, the original art to number 12 just as a side note here, was actually sold before the ending, or before it was even finished on Gibbons and Moore's part, which is a little interesting tidbit there. Mm. Is there evidence in the, because um, you said that you know they give you the notes to the, you know, the instructions for mm-hmm. Gibbons, is there evidence in there of how much was, you know, how, how specific they were? In you know, like we're finding all these little Easter eggs, so to speak. Um, is there evidence that he was told to do it each time, or was some of it his doing? Well, the script pages that were in there, just as I assumed, and I think a, a bunch of us other did on the cast as well. Moore does not believe in paragraph breaks. <laughs> it's literally a page typed. It's like watching um, Jack Nicholson type on The Shining. It's just. It's. Just, I mean, you talk about stream of consciousness. I wouldn't. I mean, I would just say it's just like a, a brain dump. I mean, it's it's really like that. However, um, Gibbons does lay stuff like that out on the thumbnails that he did. And interestingly, the um, the street intersection where the newsstand, the uh, Institute for Extraspatial Studies, the Gunga Diner, Utopia, which we'll get into uh, later. Uh, he maps everything out too, so that's a little more apparent that he had the street corners and the that specific location truly planned out for camera angles. But as far as the, I guess, Easter eggs or the illusions and stuff, um, I, I think Moore had input, but I think 
Gibbons seemed to have artistic license to drop it in as he saw fit. Right. Yeah, I've seen uh, uh, samples of Alan Moore's scripts before, and they're very, um, something you were saying earlier in our series, uh, Adam, about him being influenced by the Beats. Uh, that's pretty much the same way Jack Kerouac would write, too. He'd get a long um, roll of butcher paper and put one end into the typewriter and just type and type and type and type. It's pretty wild because you can see, I think, and you know, you can see Gibbon's frustration because there's lots of question marks flying around everywhere. There's lots of highlights. There's, um, you know, notes. Uh, it's it's interesting because the first thing we read right was the whole dog, dog carcass. And there's just a page of him trying to get Rorschach's journal and the lettering just uh, perfectly sound. It's It's pretty amazing that that still exists. But all he has is that one box of Watchmen stuff, which, make, which makes up this book. Um, everything else is completely gone. You know, it makes you wonder, uh, not to go on too long on, on this topic, but it, it makes you wonder how much was done at one time before the issues started coming out. In other words, it, it almost seems like when he was working on, let's say, issue four, that he said, oh, you know what, I'm going to throw one of these in, in issue one, now. You know, so it seems when you read it that, oh, we've seen that before, but maybe when he's working on it, he kind of backtracked. You know, well, I, don't know I, if think... that, I don't even know if that's possible, but that's the way it seems. Like, when you see things that you've seen before, it really makes you feel that he could have done it backwards. Right, well, like with like the clock face and Lori and Dan. Exactly, or, or whatever. A story point comes up in issue five, he puts something to refer to it back in issue three. You know? Like the sugar cubes. Right. That are going to be coming up. Well, I know at one point Moore was juggling that and a few other scripts at the same time, but they did say that it's, it's 50 miles from Moore's house to Gibbon's house which is about a $100 cab fare back then. So they had to shuttle not only original pages, but also uh, script pages uh, kind of back and forth between one another. And there was, um, it wasn't a deadline uh, idea of lateness, but it was just uh, whether, for, for one reason or another, more was just um, not churning out pages at one point. I did a little bit of, and just in, in all the research and stuff that we keep looking up, they... Apparently, Len Wein wanted six issues in the can, so to speak, before before soliciting or before, you know, um, sale. And apparently, they ended up going with three issues. So they only had a three-issue head start before they before they started shipping, which then, when they got towards the end, that's where we started to see some of the lateness. So issue twelve. From what I'm looking at, it looks like issue 12 was about three before, you know, from the time they, they, they planned on soliciting it in April of 87, and it didn't ship, I think, until, or solicited it to ship in April, and I don't think it shipped until like August or September. So issue 12, you know, it just, it, it and I remember at the time, it was late. Like, you, you know, it, it, it had a pretty good schedule, and as the book went on, it was, a longer period of time between the issues, you know, up until the end. And I, I do remember the, the 12th issue being pretty late. So, Yeah, I remember that, too. I remember um, not knowing when it was going to come, either my comic book guy not being able to, to tell me. And, and I think when we get to issue 12's discussion, that, that, that that's the piece I have the biggest, that's the biggest discussion 
um, points that we have is lateness and what we thought of how it affects the book and you know all that kind of stuff. So we'll we'll that'll be, that'll be a discussion topic for 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 the end. So merchandise, what do you have for us, Russ? Uh, Christmas is coming. I'd personally like a Doctor Manhattan bust. That's pretty awesome. The, it looks like the bust. All this, you know, the the new stuff coming out is all pretty pricey. Um, it's all DC Direct stuff, and it looks like they're doing a couple full size, like one six scale replicas. Um, so far, the only thing they have listed are I think Doctor Manhattan and the comedian, and they're like the Doctor Manhattan is like ninety nine bucks. And the the comedian is like 129. They're pretty they're pretty pricey, um, but they they look I mean they look good. well they they haven't actually shown the picture at least on the DC Direct website of the Doctor Manhattan one, but they do have the comedian one and it's got all the cool accessories and stuff like that and it looks good. But I don't I don't know if it looks 129 dollars you know good. I seem to think that they didn't have the special effects completely done because remember we didn't see Doctor Manhattan until Dark Knight's trailer. Yeah, it's funny because the caption on there was like. They weren't going to show it until San Diego because, like, all this stuff was supposed to debut in San Diego. And, you know, the bust is showing, you know, they show the, the bust of, of Manhattan and some of the other stuff, but not the not the, the one six scale. So not sure. Not sure. Well, you know, D.C. and as much as I love the company, their website is nothing compared to Marvel with probably traffic flow and use, usability either. They don't update that stuff. But it looks like they, they do have a six-and-a-half-inch figure line that's coming out in January, and even these are pricey for six-and-a-half-inch figures, but they've got pretty much the full line of the main cast of characters, and they're all twenty two ninety nine each, and that's suggested retail, so what they'll, you know, what they'll actually ship for in a, in a store is probably going to be pretty close to that, but, but maybe it'll get a little cheaper. And, and those look to hit the stores around January, end of January. The movie busts, and these, they're a little pricey, but I mean, most of these busts usually are between the 40 and $75 range just in general. And they're cold cast porcelain busts, and they're um, $69.99 each, and they ship in March 4th, so right before, you know, right before the movie hits, these will be out. Um, and they do look really good. Uh, I, every time I look at them, I'm so tempted to, to put an order in for them, because they, they do look pretty sharp. The big ones, as far as what's up and coming, movie related, are the the Rorschach grappling gun and the mask prop, and that's two hundred ninety five dollars shipping um, in February. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it it looks pretty sweet. The other one is the uh, the set of pistols and the dog tags for uh, the comedian. So it's got his. They look like you know two you know forty five cal pistols with the uh, the smiley face symbol embedded in the grip. And then his his dog tags, and then in the middle of it is a plaque um, where President Nixon presented the the pistols to um, the comedian, and it's like all official, and it's in a uh, in a case and everything else. And that one also is two ninety five, two hundred ninety five dollars, and that one ships um, March the fourth as well, so right before the before the movie. I was going to buy a Silk Spectre's mole. <laughs> I believe that's twenty nine ninety nine and ships in January as well. <laughs> when I was at the New York Comic Con, they had uh, some figures from the uh, the movie on display, and I got some pictures of those and uh, up on my up on my Flickr site. And there's some real I'm really impressed with them. Yeah. So they are going to have a line of just regular old nine dollar action figures as well. I'm not that, I'm not seeing that because nope. like I said, yeah. the six and a halfs are twenty two ninety nine. Yeah, just that would be the six and a half, but they're not going to be priced like nine nine ninety nine. They're going to be probably hey, twenty. Here's maybe. A, 
Yeah, but here's the crazy thing. I've got Long Halloween and Dark Victory DC Direct stuff. I got the Ed McGinn and Superman Batman DC Direct stuff. And I got um, the New Frontier DC Direct stuff, okay? Those retail at like 12 or 13, you know? 22 for these? That's crazy, man. I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. They're cashing in on this thing because I've never seen anything that's a six, and a six, six and a half inch for that much. Yeah, they got to make those other things... Uh, a little cheaper because I mean, how many times are you gonna buy Batman? Otherwise, you're only gonna do Watchmen once, so they'll get the money where they can. The reason that I brought it up was, you know, I wonder if you're gonna what the content of this movie actually is, and are they gonna be able to throw these things at Walmart, Kmart, and Toys R Us? I, I can't imagine that they be able. To, I don't. So they're really just playing to the collector community then, and they're yeah, not having the nine dollar figures for the kids to pick up. Well, but what I'm saying, John, is even for the collector, that's still that's that's almost a hundred percent markup from what they usually do. Yeah, and I, I mean think, that's pretty well, that's pretty cheesy, man. I'm out of it. I'm not I'm not buying anything. I already bought a forty dollar book this weekend. Forget it. But I think I think it gets back to what John is saying, though. Normally, they would mass market this stuff, so they could you know the cost associated with producing a six or a five and a half inch figure or whatever to mass market it to you know millions of kids versus. The fact that because because of the, the the content of this movie, it's going to be an R-rated movie. It's going to be yep. a fairly you know solid R-rated movie. They're not going to be able to market this stuff to kids. So without that huge of a you know of an audience to market to, you know the only choice they have is if, with a limited you know marketability is to increase the price. But they're probably going to go the, the Sin City 300 route and uh, have the stuff at like Hot Topic and at comic yeah. stores and things like that, not yeah. at you know Walmart and Target. And Spencer's. Yeah. There was a, a lot of talk a few years ago during the whole V for Vendetta kerfluffle that they were going to release a DC Direct Watchmen uh, line of action figures in line with the art designs of Dave Gibbons from the comic. But I think uh, somehow Alan Moore put the kibosh on that during the V for Vendetta kerfluffle. But the, the prototypes are online, the pictures, and they look just like Gibbons' art. And that's the Watchmen figure that I would really want rather than you know, the movie version. Yeah, now that I could see because, you know, Perez, they're doing the stuff with Perez with um, the history of the DC Universe line that's coming out now that they're soliciting. That's pretty cool, but I'd have to hold out for, well, I mean, look at my, my two lines, Darwin Cook line and the Tim Sale and Ed McGinnis line. You know, that's I'll, I'll buy that stuff. Hey, Russ, did you mention the Owl Ship replica? That's coming out, too, and that one is even more, you know, outrageously priced than the rest. This one is $324, and it also ships in March right before the movie. Damn thing better fly for that much. <laughs> <laughs> it better come with Sil- Silk Spectre for it to be that much. <laughs> at, at least. So that, that's pretty much all of the, the stuff associated with the movie and the new stuff. Going backward, you know, when the, and we, I, I think Jim, you touched on this a while back, but when the book actually first started shipping as a part of the promo, they produced 10,000 sets and they were numbered. 10,000 sets of, um, basically collector pins or badges and they had, you know, the smiley, you know, with the, with the blood on it and, um, the, you know, Rorschach ink blot on it and I think the clock with the blood flowing towards it and I think there, there, there was five of them in the set and I, I did some digging around eBay and you can pick up, like somebody had, had a set that was, that was unopened still in the cellophane for like 50 bucks which, which is, is pretty pricey I'm sure when they first came out. 
Uh, well, there was a big um, there was a big thing with uh, Morg and Gibbons with DC because they weren't getting any money from those, and they were right. charging. I think it was a. I mentioned it in the book when I read it this weekend. They were charging a buck for a pin, and Moore and Gibbons weren't seeing any money from that. So they had they DC actually to their credit quickly um, drew up a deal with those guys that they would be getting you know uh, a profit from it as well. And interestingly, we talked about John Higgins and coloring earlier. Higgins didn't see any royalties from Watchmen until the 2005 Absolute Edition when he recolored it. Wow. Can you imagine going through uh, 15 years without getting paid for the biggest comic of all time? At least he can cash in now with all the reprints coming out. Yeah, it explains why he'd, he'd be willing to want to cut a deal to recolor it, get a piece of the pie. I actually saw that pin set for uh, 80 bucks at the uh, the con that I was at this weekend. And they also had the... Um, it was a set of uh, art prints in a portfolio kind of envelope uh, that Dave Gibbons did to promote Watchmen. They were black and white. Uh, they're Bristol board sized, and that was going for 150. That's pretty sweet. You saw a pin set and a pin head. That's right. <laughs> it was quite a week. All right, fellas, we want to dive into issue six. Yeah. I just want to say before we get started that this is my favorite issue of Watchmen, and it's probably one of my favorite comics of all time. This is after I read this issue, I was just blown away and was kind of stunned by what I'd read, and I had to go back and read it again. Um, it's just, I find it one of the most powerful issues in the whole series. Yeah, this was definitely um, before its time, because how many interrogations have you ever seen from start to finish, whether it's a cop show or, or, or whatever, you know, the Malcolm Long, the psychiatrist that's in this book is so affected by when he talks to Walter Kovacs, AKA Rorschach, that he, he can't stop taking his work home with him at this point. And obviously it affects his relationship with his wife and the end of the story and everything else. So I'm, I'm all in for this one. This is a great issue. That, that's the single thing that really stood out for me with this issue was, I mean, I expected some really, out there stuff from from Rorschach. It's the only way I know about him from the f- previous five issues, but the way that that Doctor Long um, changed and was pulled into to Rorschach's world during the course of the issue is really surprised me and struck me, and, and that's that's just stood out most of all to me. I mean, it's not quite Stockholm syndrome, but he definitely gets Rorschach by the end of it. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. It's like a, putting a spin on Stockholm syndrome. Also, Malcolm Long is pretty much the happiest uh, character in all of Watchmen land, if you think about it, before he meets Rorschach. Yeah. And you get, uh, I guess we'll, we'll get into it. So starting with page one, again, we see the cover is the blown-up version of panel one, um, which is the ink blot that we'll see repeatedly throughout this issue. Uh, starts right here. One of the things I noticed is, you know, when, when this issue starts, it, it starts with, you know, from the notes of Dr. Malcolm. And so right away we kind of see this illusion to the fact that Malcolm is almost, you know, it's, it's, all, it's almost done, you know, prior, prior to this we've seen it, you know, the Warshak's journal. But now we're seeing basically Dr., you know, Dr. Long's journal. Yeah, it's another confession. It's really. Yeah. yeah. So, so this issue, you know, it's like he's picking up where Warshak left off while he's, you know, while he's on the inside. And it shows how, you know, he starts off very cocky, um, you know, just thinking he's, he's going to go into this and it's going to gather him, you know, fortune and glory, and he's going to figure this guy out, and he's going to cure him, and 
Um, you know, he's going to be, you know, famous for, you know, for, for taking somebody that's infamous um, and, you know, able to cure him or, you know, figure out what makes him tick. Um, and we see, you know, over the course of the issue how, how that changes from, you know, where we, where we are now to where we end up. You mentioned how, how how optimist optimistic he is. Even by the end of page one, he he's he's buying into the the story that Rorschach's given him about the what he's what he's saying. He's seeing the ink blots. He's thinking, he's, oh, he's really getting better. I'm 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 that good. I'm fixing this guy. He's really naive in that way, or, or just just blind by his own optimism. The um the the Journal of Doctor Long is almost like the the exact opposite of the Journal of Rorschach, though, if you think about it. Because he's, oh, I'm good with people. Uh, I really think he's getting better. His response, I mean, he's just as, as down and as, as deep and as, as depressing as Rorschach's journal is. Dr. Long's journal at the beginning of this is up and optimistic and hopeful. And, and we'll see as the issue goes how that changes. And, you know, when we get to the end, how, how the tone and the style of, of what he's writing in the journal just, just changes. And that last panel on page one you know Rorschach's faking the whole thing and he's coming up with these you know BS answers and uh, the doctor's buying it and everything and the doctor still says I just wish he wasn't so intense as if this is any indication of the level of intensity that Rorschach is really capable of oh yeah and that that image on the panel seven image of the dog with his you know head split in the middle and the brains poking out that is just an incredible image. I mean, just creepy, you know, and just, you know, how it matches the, you know, you can almost see it yourself that, that, you know, that inkblot image and, you know, what the Rorschach is seeing, how they match. What do you make Sorry, of the bars that are going across? Because the sunlight is casting shadows on the Rorschach inkblot test. I can't seem to think of why they're doing that other than a lighting effect. Is there anything to that? Because it's on the cover, too. Not yeah, I was I looking tell. at that myself. It, it certainly stands out, but I can't put my finger on, um, you know, exactly why. I would. I mean, it's it's, it's just, a visual. Ma- I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, is it just to contrast? Because look at the yellow ink blot test. Is it like the smiley face with the red over it? It could be that, or it could be like a visual metaphor for what's going on in the issue. We're shining a light on Rorschach. Right. Yeah. I'll take that. So page two, we get the, the title of the issue, which is The Abyss Gazes Also, which we'll, we'll see at the end, uh, the, the quote from, from Nietzsche. It's also a theme that we've seen in a lot of uh, movies like uh, Manhunter or um, uh, Red Dragon, where the person has to kind of, to understand the psychotic person, they have to kind of become a little psychotic themselves. I wonder who they cast for Malcolm Long. That's a really neat part. Yeah, I don't know. I did have to also look on IMDb and see who that was. I I did find that not to get too far off track. (laughs) (laughs) Not not to get too far off track, but I didn't realize until now that they cast Matt uh, Max Headroom Frewer as uh, as Moloch. Really, I didn't know that either. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. I saw that the other day. I was like, how come this? I, I haven't heard this at all. Anyway, we find out. Here in issue two, that that Rorschach was born in 1940, so this makes him, you know, right around 45, 46 at the time, um, you know, uh, that this is taking place. 
again, you know, as, as the issue, as the, as the series goes by, we get more and more, you know, we fill in the blanks more and more about, you know, when these folks were, you know, active versus inactive, when they were born, when, you know, when different things happened to them. You know, it's not one of those where, and I think it makes it more interesting and helps, you know, drag you into it because there's still so many unknowns, you know, about these characters. And here we are halfway through and we're finding, you know, we're just now finding out, you know, what makes Warshak tick, you know, what, why is he the way he is. We see the visual representation of the top two of the two men sitting across the table from each other. Again, the symmetry that we saw in the last issue going uh, being used as a uh, visual irony going on into the next scene. Yeah. Yeah, they're really such polar opposites in the way he uh the way he alternates showing each you know, showing each character. You have that frown on Rorschach's face and then you have the dopey doctor smile and then you have to go back to Rorschach. And he's, you know, he's, it, and when they show him, too, it's almost, you know, again, we get that symmetry, but Rorschach is sitting there, you know, he's got that straight-laced look on his face. You know, his hands are positioned both the same way. He's wearing a shirt with pockets on both sides. Um, you know, the doctor's wearing a bow tie, you know, with his, you know, coat buttoned up. So, again, you kind of kind of see where, you know, the painting kind of that symmetry to some degree. Then we see again, you know, on, on the bottom of page two, moving into page three, we get another one of these, you know, cinematic transitions where we go from what what Rorschach is looking at on the inkblot test to, you know, it kind of sparks a memory for him from his childhood and, you know, seeing his mother with another man. Then we get the goods on on his mother and what what she was like. She's a wonderful woman. Yeah. That silhouette kind of reminds me of the. Um What's the the graffiti called of the two people that? Um, oh it's actually God. referenced in this episode as well later on by uh, by, by Long. Yeah, yeah. Because he sees the same the same uh, silhouette painted. Yeah. So again, we get you know the ink blot, which is a you know symmetrical image transition to you know the man and the woman, which again alludes to the whole silhouette thing. So it's you know it's this layered imagery you know we get where it, it, it you know relates to the ink blots to the you know, to the real people, to the to the whole Holocaust silhouette thing that's been going on. And we can see even you know even as he as you know Rorschach is a young boy, you can kind of see how he's not very well kept. You know, his hair is kind of a, a mess. It's, you know, it looks like he's wearing a, a t-shirt for pajamas that you know is either torn or has stains on it. You know, the 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 apartment he lives in, the walls, you know, got a piece, a chunk of it taken out where it's exposing the, um, you know, the structure of the wall behind it. So, you know, he obviously doesn't live in a high-class joint here. And then we see on the, you know, a little more clearly on the bottom three panels of page three, we kind of get a, a good look at, at his mother. And we remember in the issue before where he runs into the landlady and he says, oh, she reminds me of my mother. And if you go back to that, to that page, you can definitely tell their similarity with, you know, how that landlady looks and his mother. You know, they're, they're similar body types and hair. You definitely see his, uh, why he's has these messed up or strange feelings or opinions on, on women. He doesn't want to be near them. He talks about, you know, the dress later on. It, it reminds me of a woman. Uh, where that comes from with the way his mother treated him and kept him. And um, as we move to, to page four, we see she, you know, takes it out on you know, him for what happened. I mean, you know, he interrupts his mother and this married man and, you know, married man gets upset because he didn't know that she had a kid and when he finds out, he's, you know, he basically equates it to if he 
if he wanted to be around screaming kids, he'd just, you know, stay at home. And so when he, when she leaves, or when he leaves, you know, she, she takes it out on, on him, like it's his fault that, you know, all this stuff is going on. And we see the, you know, the, the abuse. His home life is unsatisfying. <laughs> out of my way, retard. That's terrible. I mean, like, I think it's a cliche now, but like, you know, this kid with a bad childhood and it completely twisted him. But, you know, I see it. John, I know you see it. It's it's school. You know, these these sob stories. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating here. This is the live feed right now. You know, I mean, you, you can't help but not only empathize, but wonder. Because, I mean, John, you know which one of your kids are going to be okay. Which yeah. ones are working the program. And which ones never had a shot to begin with. And which ones just, which one of your kids, which one of your students that you, you, you empathize with them so much because they're such, you know, you could be the only good conversation or positive influence that you have, that they have. And that's not building ourselves up at all. That's, that, I don't think that is as, as an educator, not at all. But man, oh man, talk about not having a shot at all. Yeah. This, this guy yeah. fits the bill. There's something that really changes your perspective when, you know, if you're having a really hard time with a kid and, and your attitude might be this kid is just a jerk or, or whatever and, and, you know, you you end up saying to yourself, you know, I'll fix him. I'm going to call his mother. And then you call the you call home and the picture just becomes so clear. You understand. And, now, and right. And now you feel bad for the kid. You know, because he didn't have a shot. I mean, you just dealt with the parents, and there's going to be no help coming from that end. And look, he's reliving his childhood when he's beaten up himself from the cops. He's got band-aids all over the place. He's got uh, a couple shiners there. You know, he got beat up again. It was dehumanizing. They took his face off, right? They took his mask off at the end of last issue. And his mom's smacking him around and... Well, giving him a reason to put the mask on. Talk about <laughs> that just might be one of the biggest uh, flip-flop parallels we've seen so far as far as the, uh, the generational idea and years going by. Also, on, on this page, I notice um, this is on a much less serious note, but in, in the middle on the, the middle section on the, the panel on the right, you know, there's a profanity that she uses. So I guess I'll refer to Jim because he bought this as it was coming out. Was this this was something that you could just pick off the regular rack with all the other DC comic books, correct? Or was it in like, did they keep it in different sections? And I'm, I'm only I'm only asking this because you know we just had like a huge thing about All Star Batman gets taken off the shelves because they failed to completely black out a four letter word, and you know so here we are with a DC book with you know a curse dead smack in the middle of the issue. How was that? Was that dealt with at all, or? It was uh, out on the rack with the rest of the comics as far I mean, in my comic shop when I got it. And it did, it went without a comics code uh, um, symbol on it. It also had adults only written on it. Oh, it did? Or, okay. or, or mature readers or mature something readers, like that. Mature readers, yeah, mature, yeah. Yeah, it, it I haven't had my floppies out to know for sure. But it, had, it was plainly marked out on the, you know, for mature readers. Yeah, it's like this was Vertigo before there was Vertigo almost. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I remember going into Walden, like I said, going into Walden books and seeing it on the, you know, right there prominently with all the other books. And I remember when, you know, when it went to trade, I mean, it was there, you know, at, near the spinner rack, right with the Dark Knight Returns. I mean, they were both prominently displayed. 
Well, so it is now. I mean, you go into Borders right there, there with everything else today. Now, it's not standards, but opinions are a little bit different now than they were 20-some years ago, I, I would think. Uh, but it's it's being heavily promoted, and you walk in, it's right there on the uh, on their front end caps as you walk in the door. Hey, beyond, you know, beyond the profanity, even uh, when it came out, was the extreme level of violence. I'd never seen a comic this violent before that hadn't come from Japan or something. I mean, especially toward the end, obviously. I think uh, one thing that I thought of when I was watching this was um, the relationship of Dr. Melfi and Tony Soprano from The Sopranos, because her whole arc over the over six seasons of Sopranos is <laughs> is Tony Soprano a psychopathic personality? In other words, can he be treated? Or is this just an exercise in futility? You know, and Long, this is what, there are a couple of meetings that they've had here, you know? He's pretty contemplative. He's pretty thoughtful about all this, but there's this lingering doubt that maybe anything could happen with Rorschach. It's kind of weird, but it almost reminds me of the story arc of... Uh Harley Quinn in the uh, Batman animated series, too. I mean, she started out as an ambitious psychoanalyst who wanted to get inside the Joker's head and become famous uh, by doing so. And this is the same thing that Long is doing. And by the end, we find out he suffers a similar fate. Also, it kind of sets up Rorschach as like the anti-Batman, you know? I mean, you look at Batman, he's driven because his parents were killed. Here, the parents are totally, you know, the one parent is totally abusive. I mean, Bruce Wayne had everything. Uh, Rorschach has nothing but his, you know, singular perspective, you know? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. And we go to page six at the end of, well, at the end of five and all through six, it's almost like he's doing a perp walk, you know, down to his prison cell. And everybody in the cell block is calling him out completely. And um, have, you, have you guys ever seen the HBO drama Oz? Yeah. I couldn't get into it. I watched it here and there, but I didn't. I, I didn't uh, watch it on a regular basis. Yeah, these these prison scenes that are coming up in, in this episode and the subsequent issues uh, really remind me about Oz and because there was a, a nun who ran the psych department there, and and uh, you know she definitely you know had her moments with uh, Chris Keller, who was who's played by uh, the dude from Law and Order SVU. And uh, it's it's kind of another, <laughs> like we said, like okay, now we're seeing eye to eye. I gotcha. It, you know, I, there's a part of me in you now that's well, it's stuck, and you can't really do anything about it now, can you? Yeah, and this has been used a, a bunch of times in comics since since this. I know the the Punisher has been put in jail with all of the criminals that he put away, and Daredevil, Daredevil has been put in jail, right, with with Kingpin and. All these other criminals that he put away, and well, uh, Batman, the Arkham Asylum for right. Grant Morrison too. Yep, and the movie Hancock. Yeah, yeah. And don't forget the you know Tango and Cash. <laughs> 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 that Supermax movie coming out apparently is Green Arrow in the in a like supervillain prison in the Gulag. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. It's 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 almost become sort of cliched, you know. The whole, you know, cop slash hero, you know, put back into prison, you know, with the people that he's, you know, that he put behind bars, and uh, you know, I don't think it was as cliched, you know, back then as it is. Now. But it's just funny, you know. They 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 yell out everything you could possibly yell out at him, and he's just totally unfazed. 
and he's just walking along like like it's nothing. And then again, we get another transition. You know, the last transition was bookmarked around the the ink blot. You know, the, the start and the end of the transition um, were were both around the the ink blot. This one's not not quite the same. Um, but again, you know, just you see a, you know one panel, you're close up on Rorschach's face, and then in the next panel, you know, you you you're close up on it, you know, him as a kid. So again, I, these are the things that when I see the movie, I'm just I'm just going crazy about because I think I think Snyder, you know, if if he's got a handle on it, is going to just just knock it out of the park with with stuff like this. And then he gets the uh, the uh, apple or plum or whatever it is. You know, pushed in his face, and then you know we see on the on the top of seven where it just you know it almost the the pattern makes is like the ink blot you know out of this pattern on his face. The coolest part about page seven is panel two and three. Panel two, you have the two bullies looking growling at him, and then like in one panel they go from being the antagonist to being in total abject fear of him. If if you give a kid the option of being embarrassed or being quote unquote bad they're going to take they'd rather be bad than embarrassed and for these two bullies to call little walter out on you know his mother's <laughs> illicit job you know of of being a prostitute and that he's poor and everything else i mean embarrassment i mean that's what the whole bullying thing is it's complete embarrassment especially over something that he can't control no wonder he flips out yeah, I was just going to say it. You know, at the bottom of six, we find out if there's any, if if there's any doubt in anyone's mind as to what his mother's occupation was, they pretty much sew it up at the at the bottom of six. You know, the other thing this thing this does too is it shows just how resourceful and violent he was as even as a small child. I mean, you know, here he is. He sees you know, the, you know, the cigarette as a as a weapon. You know, and grabs it and turns it back on the guy, and then you know the next the next guy he just you know, the one that, that was eating the apple and shoved it in his face, you know, here he's going to turn it back on him and start eating his face. It's just, you know, just how... And then that that uh, seventh panel on the bottom of seven, you can just see that look on his face that he's just, you know, it lost it. His face is beat red. You know, that look of just craziness on his eyes are all bugged out. You know, it's taken three guys to hold him back. If you could just jump into his brain... In those last three panels, I mean, he is thinking the absolute unthinkable. You know, a mile a minute, probably too. Oh yeah, I'm sure he's going through in his mind every scenario that's possibly going to come at him, as far as how these prisoners are going to come at him, and you know how he's going to how he's going to you know go back at him. You know, there's something I noticed at the top of page eight. If you don't mind, if we go on, um, the three panels with Doctor Long. He's in the light, but the light is kind of half covering him. Yep, like he's in the dark. Out of the darkness. <laughs> and then if you look a couple pages later, not to jump ahead too far, but he's working on the Kovacs case again later, and there's only a small spotlight of light on him. It's like as he gets deeper into Rorschach's head, he's getting more and more into darkness. Like Literally. part of darkness. Right, yeah. exactly. So it's another another visual metaphor for what's going on in the story. That too, I think he, you know, he feels like he's clued in in the beginning here, like he's got him figured out, and he he knows what to do. And the more and more he gets into it, the more he realizes he's, you know, he he, the less he really really knows about who this guy is. Yeah, like when his and when his wife comes in, he's in full light again. He's in full lighting until they show the silhouette of the two of them. 
Which is like the two people kissing. Exactly. You know, then we, you know, find out, you know, his mother passed away at 56 when he was 16, and, you know, his comments were one word, good. You know, I'm, you know, no remorse at all. Well, the way she treated him, do you blame her? Not at all. And he, he, he you know, the the doctor, you know, is is kind of understand that he sees himself as Rorschach, but, you know, he doesn't see himself as, as Kovacs. But but he wants to see him as as Kovacs. You know, he corrects his wife. You know, she calls him Rorschach, and he corrects his wife and says, you know, not Rorschach, Walter Kovacs. You know, Rorschach's an unhealthy fantasy personality. But he also notes that he wouldn't answer to anything else during his bail hearing. So he realizes he sees himself as as Rorschach and not as Kovacs, and the doctor sees him as Kovacs, not Rorschach, and wants and you know is trying to drive that distinction home. Kind of goes back to the previous issues where we had talked about how he said that he was in disguise when he didn't have his mask on, and then his mask he referred to as his face. Right. Does anybody we 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 see this one in on page eight in the middle section there? You know, obviously, we see the silhouettes, which is another allusion to the whole you know again the the doomsday, the nuclear you know, war, um, you know, and at this point the silhouette is, you know, the two of them embracing and, you know, um, being close to each other. Do you guys see what that is hanging either on the ceiling or on the wall? It's like some sort of, uh, it's like four, four balls hanging from like a strip. It's almost like some kind of a mobile or something like that. Right. Isn't that like weird seventies art deco, like lighting, Jim, is, is that the headlamp in the room? <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate that. That's what I thought. I thought it was just a lamp of some sort, some sort of decorative lamp over his head. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't. Again, I didn't, you know. Sometimes a cigar is a star, but um, you know, I didn't know if anybody else, you know, recognized that as something meaningful. Oh, I know what it is. I know exactly what it is. But it's a big spoiler for twelve. We'll, we'll make it. Go up. ahead. No. Nah. <laughs> okay. We'll make we'll make a note of it. All right. Yeah, don't you make that one for me either. Brought to you by the committee who wants to make Adam Umack's last name a verb. Hey, if you <laughs> if you know if you know the story and if you know what happens to Malcolm, go to issue twelve. That's all. Okay. There you go. Fair enough. So then we get on page nine. It, we set it up almost the same way. The panel layout is is almost the same. The first panel is is the top third of the page all is one panel, the two of them sitting across from each other, um, and then and then it carries on. And uh, I love that, that fifth panel on the towards the bottom of page nine, um, where he's just looking at him, he goes, you keep calling me Walter, I don't like you. And you can tell now the doctor is going from this kind of, you know, positive, happy, thinking he can do something to, to help him, to just fear, you know, in the, in the way that the lines are, are cut, um, you know, on the sides of his face to, to kind of imply some motion, and you can tell he's just quaking. Yeah, this is the first time Rorschach's actually said something that either he wasn't expecting or certainly honest, and he's thrown by it. He's like, he's realizing that, well, I don't have him figured out yet. It's like uh, this page is a turning point where he finally starts to reach, you know, Rorschach and not this, like, surface uh, Kovacs, uh, you know, who's been lying to him about his reactions and whatnot. If you uh, were to diagnose Rorschach... I want. I want. Uh, I know we all have at least had uh, <laughs> a high school education and then some. So, what would you diagnose him as? Would you? Would he be 
uh, split personality, borderline personality, bipolar? Would he be like extremely withdrawn? I mean, what, what's the analysis? What's the final analysis, as Bernard would say? Knocking futs. <laughs> I was going to say back guano crazy, but that's just me. Yeah, I definitely see a sociopath because, especially when he's in the Rorschach persona, he seems to look at people as objects rather than people, and that's classic psychopathic behavior. That's like extended dissociation. Correct. I had one semester of psychology in college, and it was one, I think during my freshman year, so that was uh, too long ago for me to, to remember anything yeah. useful. I never even liked my Psych 101 class. We just talked about like medication, like L-Dopa, dopamine, stuff like that. We didn't get any of the good stuff. Yeah, the one semester you're required to take. Yeah, yeah, I just kind of cruised through it, so I'm sticking with Bacuano crazy. So then we get to page 10, and this uh, this page for me I thought was extremely interesting because this is, we we relate to events that happen in the real world, you know, stuff, real, real stuff that's going on um, or that went on um, during this time. And we see, like in the, in the first panel on page 10 where he, he, he gets a job, and he's 16, he leaves the children's home, and he gets a job in a, in a garment factory. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see the look on his face when he's around, like women's, you know, clothing and undergarments and things like that. That that look on his face on the first panel is just like he's just scared to death. I never realized. Um, obviously, I'd read it before, but I never, I guess, picked up that um, the fabric was supposed to be for a Doctor Manhattan type of spinoff fashion. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. it says uh, order for dress in new Doctor Manhattan spinoff fabric. So I guess the changing. Shapes and colors was supposed to be to cash in on like Doctor Manhattan's changing appearance. I would, I guess, I took it as that. That's what or... it sounds like, right? Yeah, no, I they, mean, it as they that. mean like they mean like spinoff, like um, I was thinking it was technology that he created or somehow had a hand in it, and it, either his facility or he himself helped make happen. Um, somehow he was directly involved with his creation. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the point. But, it, you know, it's kind of Plus, interesting to, that, you know, this is something that we don't, you know, I've never seen anything like this in the, you know, in, in the real world, you know, where you've got, you know, you know, a piece of fabric that's, you know, basically fluid, you know, I thought, I thought it was kind of interesting. Hey, Zack Snyder found us, found something to make, uh, make his mask, right? Right. But, it, you know, the, the genesis of, of, of this whole thing is, is what, you know, what I find interesting is that, you know, they say in here, um, you know, it starts off where, you know, customer, young girl, Italian name, never collected order, said dress looked ugly. Um, and, and then, you know, as we progress on, you know, they talk about, you know, where Kitty Genovese was killed in New York. And, you know, this is the whole, the famous, you know, 40 people sitting out their window watching a woman, you know, be murdered. And Was this true? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a true story. It, it, it's a little exaggerated. I mean, they literally weren't, from what I understand, they literally weren't looking out their window watching it happen, um, like where they could see it. Um, but, yeah, everybody heard it, and everybody could hear where it was coming from. But, again, nobody called Nobody called 911. Nobody called the police um, to, for help. So it's like, who watches the watchman? Yeah. So I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they tie this whole together. You know, the whole purpose of... The purpose of the of of this you know fabric or this dress coming about into his life was this woman that 
that ordered it, and then she didn't like it, and then she ends up getting killed while all these people watch and nobody and nobody does anything, and he takes that fabric to make, you know, to basically give himself his identity to go out and fight the people that would hurt, you know, hurt, you know, hurt the innocent. So, you know, it, it's like it, come, it kind of came back full circle. There's that kind of uh, Oedipal thing like, well, it was spurred on by saving a woman, if you want to tie that back to his mom, too. It's also uh, indicative, as as we've seen through the whole series, of how uh, Morgan Gibbons tie the Watchmen world to real events in our world. You know, with uh, I mean, we've seen it time and time again as we've gone through the series. Also, um, it's almost this story that he gives uh, Doctor Long is almost like altruistic. You know, like oh well, she was killed by crime, so that caused me to go on my crime rampage. Um, just slowly but surely peeling off the onion layers of how he became who he is now. Well, it, it, the other thing that's 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 interesting is he takes it home. He takes the fabric home, and then. He he learned to cut it using you know basically he used up a pair of scissors and um, you know cut it so the fabric would reseal itself without all the stuff leaking out of it. But he said when I had cut it enough, it didn't look like a woman anymore. And then it's it's some time before he uses that as a mask for Rorschach. So basically, it it's almost like when he took it home to cut it up. Part of it was I think him being somewhat experimental experimental with it. Number one and number two. Like, what do you mean? Like, like voyeuristic? No, I, th- I think just, just from a scientific perspective, you know, trying to figure out a way to do something with the fabric. Um, you know, so he's, he's trying to, you know, he, you know, it looks like he's got several different implements on, on the table there, and he's got that, you know, it lo- almost looks like a Bunsen burner type thing going on. So, so part of it, to me, was he was, he was being a little, um, experimental and scientific, but at the same point, he's trying to cut this thing up so it doesn't look like a woman's dress. He doesn't want a woman's dress hanging around, you know. And and that's you know he makes the point of it didn't look like a woman anymore, you know, when he was done with it. So he sees that you know I can, I could just see it you know hanging in his apartment for a while, you know this this dress that just reminds him of a woman. And so what does he do? He finds a way to cut it up so it doesn't look like a woman anymore. And then it's not what two years later I think before he actually takes it and actually makes the Rorschach mask out of it. So it's not like he you know, immediately took the fabric, found a way to tear it apart, and, and became Rorschach. There, there's a, a time in between. The pills that Dr. Long uh, begins popping, they're called Gopain. Is that a, do we know that that's a V product? It Whoa. seems familiar to me. Did we see that anywhere? No, we'll see. We'll see later on in a in a coming page when they close up on the bottle. Um, you can actually see a V um, on it, so it, it's a little more clear that it's a it's a V product. Okay, and I, I've, I've got it in my notes. When we hit when we hit that page, um, I'll, I'll point it out because it'll become a little more clear. What I like about this page too, on uh, page eleven, is the way Rorschach points out the problems with Doctor Long. You know, he thinks he's a good person. He's spending all the time with him, even though he has more extreme cases because he wants to make the journals. He spells it out very clearly that he's, you know, hip to what Long is is actually about. Right, yeah, but yeah. At this, but but at the same time, I mean, th- this is where I I kind of part ways with Rorschach because he sees the world in black and white. He he says that when he's picking the dress up. So why can't he accept the fact that Long's on the side of 
good? Or, or is that not good enough for him? You know what I mean? You have to fight crime and do crazy journal entries to, to be, you know, alpha male superhero. Well, I think the doctor is part of what's keeping Rorschach in jail, you know, in his mind. He's part of the establishment that's not letting him go out and do his job. But ideologically, shouldn't he agree? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that just goes to show that he's nuts. You know, we don't really know what he should be thinking, or, or we know what he should be thinking, but he obviously doesn't work that way. Right, I'm just saying, well, if, if he thinks he's right, then I don't know. I was just going to say, he seems to have a lot of contempt for Long. I mean, earlier he's like, you know, you're fat, you're uh, wealthy, you think you understand pain. I think he doesn't really, I think that he thinks that Long doesn't understand him in any way, and is just doing it to get his name into the journals and whatnot. And this is almost like uh, Rorschach's gift of madness to Dr. Long. You know what I mean? You really want to understand me? You really want to know what makes me tick? Okay, here it comes, you know. But he also calls him out. You know, I mean, he, he like you said, Jim, he he's calling him out on the fact that you know he he's his his you know his motivations aren't completely altruistic. I mean, you know, he's he's doing that. You know, initially he he entered the spotlight not to help you know poor you know Walter Kovacs. He he did this to hopefully take somebody famous, be able to cure him, and you know you know be a, a household name. And Rorschach knows that, you know, yeah, and Rorschach yeah. is totally playing to that. I mean, it seems like Dr. Long is in control of the session, but as it goes on, Rorschach is really the one exerting control. So, you know, so he may see him as a good person at one level, but on the other level, he also knows what he's about. So, again, you know, he, you know, I think it gets back to why he doesn't see him as just this completely good person. This next page 12 is this whole incident in the line is just really cool. Where he, you know, the guy behind him, you know, way, you know, obviously bigger, a lot bigger than than Rorschach is, giving him a hard time, going on, and then, you know, pulls out the shank, and, you know, before he gets a chance to use it, Rorschach, you know, wheels around a vat of hot grease and flips it right at the guy. So, do you guys think that Rorschach knew he was he was going to get shivved, or do you think it was just Timing. Well, they were spying on him while he was in the session with Dr. Long on panel four of page 11. And knowing Rorschach, he probably anticipated it or noticed them outside in the hallway. Right. So maybe. And even if that's not the case, <laughs> they stepped into the realm. You know, they, they should know what they're up against. Plus, what's the first thing you do in prison, John? Uh, you punk out someone, you know what I mean? Establish yeah. your uh, territory in your street. Plus, a rep. big name, a big name guy like Rorschach, the guy who took him out, would have major cred in, you know, inside. And we see time and time again that Rorschach's big superpower is just his total resourcefulness. I mean, he's able to use everything around him for his. I mean, we see it again later, obviously, but um, here we see it again where uh, he uses his environment as the weapon. Oh, we I meant, I this. meant that. I meant that from Rorschach's angle because everybody's calling him a runt, and uh, you know he he burns this guy's face off, you know. So he he has to establish himself in the jail too. What's he say later? You yeah, know the he, famous he quote from this issue: "You're all you know what in here with me." So right, it definitely goes both ways. That's interesting that you guys looked at it from opposite ends. 
I will say this though, um, and I, I know we talked about Oz just a, a minute ago, but uh, I have never seen a show with more creative ways to kill off characters than Oz. <laughs> I mean, that's just six six uh, <laughs> six solid seasons, ninety some episodes of ridiculous uh, things that go beyond beyond uh, shanking someone. You know, or tossing them down elevator shafts. Uh, Oz is a pretty cool show if you're an HBO dude like I am. The other thing, one of the one of the things on my notes that I wrote down was wondering if if Rorschach kind of has a sixth sense. You know, maybe not in a in a supernatural superhero you know hero way, but almost like in a you know just based on his experience as a as a crime fighter and a costume you know hero and whatnot that he's kind of developed this whole you know sixth sense. So even though he didn't. You know, he may not have known the guy behind him. You know, had a had a shiv at his back. He was pretty sure he did, and just kind of had that moment where he realized, okay, it's either him or me. I'm just going to do it before he does, kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, the guy the guy is mouthing off. I mean, he goes into the whole bit about the autograph book here in my pocket. I mean, you got to start to, you know, he had to figure out something uh, unpleasant was coming. I mean, plus everything that's happened to Walter. What that was bad in his life as a result of him not acting or reacting. So this is the opposite of being a doormat. Yeah, almost like once he turned the corner on being Rorschach, which we'll we'll see later. You know that that's what did it. Like from that moment on, he's he's not the he's proactive and not reactive, like you're saying. So looking on page thirteen, we see the the round coffee pot with the uh, the splash in there. Did, and, and it's kind of that purpley, you know, color. Did anybody else kind of? Again, we've seen this before with the nostalgia bottle, the you know, the perfume bottle. Um, you know, and they've shown it a couple other times where you get these round, you know, again like a clock face or a smiley face or whatever you want to call it. I I totally agree with that. But that big splash in the middle, that looks like something that we're going to be seeing um, on Mars pretty soon. Yep. Yeah. And well, it even we- looks like space underneath the way the bottle. You know, the reflection, I guess, it looks kind of like stars and things going on in space. I think the closest thing to this, besides the nostalgia bottle, guys, is when Lori looks at the snow globe, when she's having her flashback when she was a kid. And also, if you look um, throughout this, do you remember last issue where they were the two cops were at the crime scene where the hippie killed the family? Um, there was a lamp, like a, like not a table lamp, but like a, a ceiling lamp that was a ball shape like this. And there were all kind of zigzags and dots on it, and that actually matched um, Adrian's globe that he has. And mm-hmm. the the motif that's re- repeated through the book is like circular objects, like a globe, or in this case, the coffee pot or the snow globe. In the next couple of issues, that are reflecting, which it, the, the the penultimate globe, which is Adrian's, when we see it at the end of the book. The cigarette in the ashtray on the bottom right is in the position for our clock with the smoke going up being the splash mark. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there's that thing with the the, uh, the light that I mentioned before. He has less light on him than he had before. He's in more in darkness. Yeah. And then the clock. You see the clock in the background on um, panel 5 and panel 8. Where it's you know almost midnight, which again is the whole you know getting closer to midnight thing, and the fact that it's midnight and he's still up you know working on this case instead of 
you know, being with his family. I mean, he, he you know, he has a, we've seen the mug that says dad on it, um, but yet, you know, we never see him with his kids or anything else. Which is something uh, that we saw in Batman Year One as well, right? Yeah. Commissioner Gordon had the world's best dad mug. And this is, you know, again, where we start to see where him and his wife are kind of, you know, he's he's getting obsessed with this case and pulling away from his wife. And you know, she's starting to, to notice it. And Long's starting to slip, too. He refers to uh, him as Rorschach and then corrects himself. Kovacs, yeah. not, not Rorschach. Then again, we see the silhouette. You know, his wife is in silhouette, you know, again. But this time it's solitary. You know, we just see the, the single silhouette of his wife. And I just love that, you know, that, that quote where he says, you're locked up in here with me. So moving on to 14, um, it, you know, this is where we find, too, that he didn't see himself as Rorschach at first. Um, you know, even though he in the, you know, the costume, so to speak, and he was out there, you know, being a vigilante or a superhero, he didn't see himself as Rorschach. You know, he he saw it as, you know, Walter Kovacs pretending to be Rorschach, that he wasn't quite there yet. There was, you know, seeing from him that that he just he just wasn't there yet. Yeah, Rorschach at this point was just a uh, a persona he would adopt. A, it was a a method, a, a way to 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 fight crime, but not be have it lead back to to him as Kovacs. It hasn't developed into a separate, distinct personality yet. Plus, we can draw the distinction between this Rorschach who let the criminals live and didn't, you know, break their spines or whatever, to the Rorschach we see him become later on in this issue that t- took a more extreme uh, approach to the crime fighting. And, it, and it's funny that, you know, he, you know, at the bottom of 13, he says, hadn't realized the stakes we were playing for back then, all of us, me, my friends, all soft. So, you know, looking back on it now, he saw everybody as just being... You know, again, being weak. You know, they weren't they weren't playing hardball and they weren't playing for keeps. They were just out there. Adam, you you mentioned earlier the three stripes that were caused by the light coming through onto the table. Yep. It's interesting that they show that angle. You know, like at the bottom of fourteen, last panel, we're getting the perspective from the angle of what's actually causing those stripes of light. Again, I don't. I haven't put yeah, my finger on what it means, but yeah, you're just seeing the the shadows of the uh, of the bars, as you're saying, right, uh, being laid across the table. And plus, um, while he's going through this uh, story, the the happy time of Rorschach or whatever, the uh, all the light in the room is very bright. It seems like you know what I mean. I mean, he's not become dark Rorschach or whatever. He ends up becoming later. He uh, seems like a very happy and almost nostalgic time. Although he's kind of chiding himself for being soft and. All of the others to being soft. You look at uh, panel six on fourteen. The policeman's flashlight matches the lamp that Malcolm has, and it's shining a light on Rorschach. In other words, this is almost like an epiphany. Aha! That's that's your aha moment. Remember those V eight commercials back in the eighties, where as soon as you drank a V eight, you smacked your head. Aha! I got it. That's exactly what what this is. Because what what does Malcolm do? The first thing he almost calls him Rorschach instead of Walter. Then he has to correct himself. He's turning. Not in the fact that he, you know, when, when when Rorschach mentions he had friends, you know, that's the first thing that Dr. Long says is, you have friends? You know, almost like he's he's surprised to know that, you know, that that he, he either was at some point or is capable of having, you know, 
personal interaction. And he, you know, he's quick to point out to him, you know, Kovacs had friends, other men in costumes. All Kovacs ever was man in costume, not Rorschach. So again, he's making that distinction of, you know, it's at some point, even though he was still in the costume, he was not Rorschach. And then at some point it was. And, you know, as we move forward, we'll, we'll see what that moment, you know, what that moment was. It's odd that he almost shows like a, um, like a begrudging admiration of the comedian and the comedian's opinion about how he understood. He understood man's capacity for horrors and never quit, saw the world's black underbelly and never surrendered. Once a man is seen, he can never turn his back on it, never pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's funny. He's kind of a, you know alluded to it. I mean, obviously he thought he was positive about the comedian. Otherwise, he wouldn't have you know started investigating his death to begin with. You know, obviously he was intrigued you know, by the comedian to some degree. And so it's interesting that he goes, you know, he, he talks about everybody else as being soft and in and, and, and somewhat of a negative light. And here when we talk about the comedian, he, you know, he basically, you know, he kind of gushes a little bit about him. Yeah, I think uh, there are more kindred spirits uh, than anything after this passage. And if you look at Rorschach's coat, it's open. So, yeah, he is kind of open to it. He That kind of madness is attractive to him. You know, the comedian just... Uh, emoted it better than, than Rorschach did. And everything he says about the comedian at the bottom of page 15, I guess that'd be panel 5, also applies to Dr. Long. That panel on at the bottom of 15 but, looks just like when Rorschach was walking away from um, the comedian's grave, too. And look, there's a uh, presumably dead body right where the comedian would be if this was the funeral scene. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's funny because... This, the scene we see here at the bottom, it's, you know, again, we see the who watches the, the watchman, but it's, you know, again, it's not finished. And, it, you know, obviously Rorschach came across the guy that was, then, you know, spray painting that and, you know, took him down. And then we see a, you know, sign that says badges, not masks. And then at the bottom we see Keenak pass vigilantes illegal. So, again, you know, it's all, this is where it kind of all comes to an end. You know what I was thinking about the, the Keenak for us is that, even though they outlawed vigilante superheroes, the first thing they did was they turned around and they hired Dr. Manhattan. I mean, you talk about the government talking about talking out of both sides of its mouth. I mean, that's pretty self-evident here. Wasn't yeah, Manhattan always like a tool of the government, though, like from the very beginning? Pretty much. And the comedian had been for some time, you know, since, since you know, conceivably the early 60s. Just, you know, hypocritical, of course. Yeah. I just right. like the way Rorschach uh, is explaining with that panel that you're talking about with the Keenak being passed or whatnot. He's explaining why he kept on going after the Keenak was passed. Yeah. Right. In the case of the comedian Dr. Manhattan, they're treating them as the as tools as as the weapons of the of the government that they see them as not not as vigilantes so much. You know, they they they're a separate class of costume hero. I love the uh I love the second panel on on fifteen. You have you have the perspective coming from the you know from the rioters, I guess, and they, they got wrenches, broken bottles, a bat with glass in it, and knives and chains. And there's Rorschach with his hands in his pockets. You know, like big deal. Yeah. You know, what are the, what are these guys going to do? Even even um, what is it, Night wow. Owl? I'm blanking out. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's wringing his hands, almost like getting ready for a fight. And Rorschach's just kind of hanging out with his hands in his pockets, like he was. You know, window browsing at the mall or something. Yeah, <laughs> and we see the. I want to come back to the at the bottom of fifteen that panel and and what Rorschach is looking 
at in a, in a, in a minute here and see if, if you guys, we'll see in a couple, in a few pages from now, but I want to come back to that and see if, if, if what's going on there matches what goes on a little later. And I think moving on to 16, I think this is where we see that the doc is starting to kind of get it. You know, that, that, you know, he's starting to see, you know, a little bit more of what Rorschach is about um, and, you know, what's kind of going through his mind. And, again, we see more how he's becoming detached. And it, it's it's funny how, every you know, more and more frequently now we see the doc popping pills. You know, the, the, on the we saw a couple pages ago, he had, like, uh, on page 14, he had three bottles of that painkiller on, on the table as he's talking to Rorschach. And again, on, on 16, we see him popping two more pills. The top panel, too, this is the third time we've seen that this issue. And progressively, I think that's why we have the bars up there, John and everybody. So you can see it's like it's getting darker, it's getting darker, leading to the eventual, what, ultimate reveal of how Rorschach came to be and, well, the eventual complete blackout for the final panel of the issue, too. Right, the last session he had was a lot brighter. The, the sunlight was filling the room. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as the story gets darker, it gets darker. Another visual metaphor. So I think the, we we got that answered here. Yeah, and he's 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 starting to you know the Doctor Long is also starting you know you can kind of see where he's going. You know, he visits the newsstand. You know, and Bernard the the news guy, and you know then sees the silhouette that's you know painted on on the on the building across the street. So it's almost like he's he's starting to follow his routine even. You know, that was part of Rorschach's routine is the daily go, you know, to the newsstand and then, you know, see that you know, see what was, you know, spray painted across the wall. So and I'm assuming that's the same garbage can uh outside the Gunga Diner that uh that Rorschach was watching in the previous issue. Yeah, I would I would assume that as well. Again, yeah, because you, know, you can see you can see Bernard's coat in the third one, two, in the sixth panel. Yeah. And then we see, you know, the last panel on sixteen. You know, we see he's, you know, again, it's it the, the clock in the background lit up almost midnight. He's still awake. No, his wife's awake. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry. It's the other way around. She's kind of like not horrified, but some, you know, marital tension definitely. And they're facing away from each other too. Then on 17, we kind of see, to me, this is the biggest turn for the doctor's approach or how he interacts with Rorschach. He comes into the, to the, to the room and the first thing he says is, hello, Rorschach, how are you today? So at this point, he's pretty much given up on the whole, you know, he's Walter Kovacs, not Rorschach. He, he's getting it. He understands he's Rorschach. He's not Walter. And the way it just starts out on that, on 17 is today he told me everything. So, you know, right right now we're setting it up to where we're gonna, you know, we're finally gonna find out what what made this guy, you know, what, you know, what turned that switch in him. It's funny how um how how Rorschach answers. You know, how are you today in prison yourself? Yeah. As as I, it, it's funny and it's very true to um to life. Actually, as I spoke about, I, I work in a jail and in an attempt, you know, subconsciously. You want to treat the inmates like normal people, so you you try to create this regular small talk, and you realize that the answer is always, you know, the same. Like I'll walk in mo- Monday and mistakenly ask somebody, "How was your weekend?" You know, and the answer is going to be, "What do you mean? How was my weekend? I'm in jail." You know, 
<laughs> that's so it, it's very it struck me as funny especially because that sort of dialogue happens all the time you're trying to treat somebody normally but you're really just being ridiculous you know without meaning it it's almost like we've been watching them set up the dominoes through the whole uh, issue and now with this final story they're all going to be knocked over i mean in fairness you know, Dr. Lung is no slouch either. He gives Rorschach this card back, and he says, you know, uh, I, yes, I know, I, uh, I thought you might have been holding back before, and I wanted to try it again. Go on, tell me what you really see. Tell me what you really see. So I, I guess the question with, with Panel 4 is, is he really going to, is he looking for the answer, or is he looking to see how far down the rabbit hole Rorschach will go? You know, is, is this selfish interest, or is this... Well, altruistic interest at this point from Long, but he does pick up on that beat from the first meeting they had, though. To his credit, I wonder why. Uh, yeah. Why? Why is it this this particular card that that Long picks that he wants to to go into more detail with? I mean, he had a stack of cards. He he's shown them all to Rorschach. We know Rorschach gave him you know some kind of nonsense answer each time for every one of them, but for some reason this one stuck out in in his mind, and this is the one he pulls back out. To uh, to approach him with, that's the first one he did. Maybe it's just the top of the deck. That was the first one we saw, but I'm not assuming. I'm I don't know that it isn't. Okay. You know, the, well, he didn't see more before. I, I took it as when he walked in the room. When the, when Doctor Long walked in the room, he he made an effort to say, "Okay, we're going to start over again. I've got this guy figured out now. He was completely BSing me up in you know at, at the beginning. I've." I found out there's, you know, there's more to him that, you know, he wasn't telling the truth about what he saw, and, you know, he's he's gone, you know, further and further and further down the hole, so he's going to start over. And since he's starting over, he's going to give him that first card back and say, okay, you know, you know, tell me what you really see because I know when you told me when right. you saw this card for the first time earlier, what you told me was a complete lie. So let's, you know, we're going to start over again. And that could be, but what really struck me, he in the third panel there, how about taking a look at this one for me? Emphasis on this. He's specifically choosing that card, not just because it's the top one in the deck, but he, he just somehow sensed. Other than, yes, this is the card that's going to bring me down into the, the big piece of the puzzle he needs. Was there something I missed, something in the reading, something that really struck him as, as this was a nonsense card? Because uh, it seemed like he, it was more than just this at the top of the deck. Yeah, I don't... Like why yeah. the why this one and not the one with it that that reminded him of his mother, for example, of those two. Why why was it this one that struck him as significant? I guess I took it as he. I figured he would get to that one eventually too. Like I said, I I took it. As, I don't think he missed anything per se. I just took it as we're going to start over again. And since this was the first one I saw, I showed you. Let's let's take it from the top. I kind of just that's chalked it up to storytelling effect. I mean, that's the one that gives us the dog again you know that's the most disturbing i didn't i didn't read into it as far i could be wrong but i mean clearly he wasn't expecting the answer he got uh so oh, no. he wasn't expecting anything that that horrific but he he expected something he he knew it wasn't going to be a butterfly yeah but i think he expected himself to be correct though yeah but you look at the expression on his face on that you know on that you know eighth panel on on 17 and it's just like once he told him, he's just like, oh my god, it's it's ten times worse than I thought it was. And it's like, you know, he he he's he's asking him, you know, how do you think the dog's head, you know, got split in in half? He he knows what the answer's going to be, it, but he asks it anyway. 
I think it, I think it's more like uh, Dr. Long has more of an insight. I mean, earlier he gave him the card, and he's like, uh, pretty butterfly, and Dr. Long's like, that's great, Walter, that's great. And now he's giving it to him, and he's like, he has a little more insight into Rorschach. He knows that Rorschach was lying, just because he has more of the mindset. Then we move it on to 18. You know, he, you know, he, he talks about how he became obsessed with this case from 1975. And you know, goes goes on, and then, you know, the one thing he says, uh, visited unruled bars and began hurting people, put 14 in hospital needlessly. 15th gave me an address, disguised, you know, dis, or disused dressmakers in Brooklyn. So, again, we start to see where he feels the ends justify the means. You know, yeah, I, I beat up 14 people and put them in the hospital, and it was totally unnecessary, but that 15th guy, he was the one that, that knew and it, you know, it takes us back to when we get to the beginning of the, you know, back at the beginning of the book when he goes in the bar and just starts beating everybody up to find out what happened to the comedian. He figures, you know, maybe nobody knows, but, you know, I'll beat them all up. And if one of them says, hey, this is what happened, then, you know, you know yay for me. And that 19 is so, you know, it's so powerful without any dialogue or any. It reminds me know, a lot of when he was searching all. the. It reminded me a lot of when he was searching the comedian's apartment. Again, no dialogue, yeah. just him going through the process, the the mythology of of uh, of searching for the clues and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And that that look, I'm back on 18, that fourth panel, where the the pattern he's got on that mask, that is just awesome. You can tell that just that determination and anger, and everything is just clear on that. You know, the, it almost you know it's that mean face with the. You know the, the the eyebrows slanting forward and everything. Given what we know about the, uh, the the nature of the fabric now, is it actually being manipulated by his expression? Do we think like is it actually trying to mimicking his the position of his his his, his facial structure? Is his, his his whatever he's doing his face smiling, frowning, squinting? Is the fabric reacting to that and 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 the fluid as they call it inside? the fact you're moving around it, or is it just more of a random pattern? No, I, I think so. I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, heat sensitive too, right? Yeah, it's heat sensitive and, you know, pressure sensitive and everything else. So I think it, you know, obviously it serves two purposes. You know, one, it, it's, you know, used as a, you know, as a visual device. But, yeah, to not agree. I think he's totally, you know, his, his you know, it, it, you can almost see what his face looks like behind the mask, even though you can't see his face. And again, like like Ken was saying, that you know this this whole sequence reminds me at the beginning of the comedian's, um, you know, apartment where he's you know you see this this more analytical and detective oriented, you know, thing he's going through, you know, everything, and you know he's looking, you know, he's being a little, you know, thinking outside the box kind of thing. You know, he opens up, you know, there's all this stuff strewn everywhere in this room, and what does he do? He opens up the pot belly stove and sticks his hand in there and finds, you know article of clothing and, you know, walks upstairs and, you know, opens up the, the cupboards and finds nothing but sharp objects and, um, you know, and then once he, uh, you know, looks on the, you know, cutting board there and sees, you know, just, you know deep slice marks taken out of it. And then it's like once, once he looks in that backyard and sees what those dogs are doing and the bones they have, it's that, that last that last panel on page 20 where it's just the blood, you know, the coloring is all blood red and he's looking out a window and it almost looks like there's drops. If you kind of look on the, on the right hand side of, of that panel, there's drops. It's almost like he's sweating. 
you know, like he's, you know, he's figured it out. At this point, he has completely figured out what, you know, what happened that, you know, that this guy's come, kidnapped the kid. Once they figured out the kid was not worth anything to him, you know, he wasn't the heir to some fortune, they realized they were in trouble. They burned the clothes. They cut him up. They, you know, threw her, you know, parts outside for the dogs to eat. And then he just, that, you know, this is it. This That, that last panel on page 20 is where it turned. You know, that's where he stopped become being Walter Kovacs, and he's, you know, Rorschach for, from here forward. Right in the middle of page 21, he basically spells that, that out to us. Yeah. It, it was Rorschach who opened them again. It was Kovacs yep. who said mother, then muffled under latex. It was Kovacs who closed his eyes. It was Rorschach who opened them up again. I think uh, it's pretty cool the way they, they tell the story, too, that um, we're, we're detecting right along with Rorschach. You know, it's not, it would have been very easy for him you know, to spell out what happened. But no, we're, I mean, just the way Rorschach is putting together the scenario, so are we. Yeah, nothing's, nothing's spoken. You know, I mean, we know exactly what happened, and nobody said a word. This is just like in the comedian's apartment. Yep. And then, you know, at the end of the bottom, last panel 21, you know, we get the, the, the ink blot, and it's just covered, you know, it's just blood red. Now, are we to assume that his mask changed to that shape? I didn't take it I, in that, but, but that's Well, that's it. what I did, because the last that's, thing you see is when he's literally seeing red outside. No, I think that's I'm, I think. I'm thinking that's a big because there's no there's no reason in that prison room right now in the, in the in the holding cell for it to be blood red, and they don't just switch colors for dramatic effect in this book either. Nah, I'm telling you, his mask his mask changed. Now nah, with with the uh, with the with the way the dialogue balloons are and the and the the lines coming out going off the panel, I'm thinking that's just a push in onto the uh, onto the ink blot itself. I don't think that's meant to be his mask. And I think it's a visual motif that we see from the beginning of the, the, the issue when it's bright yellow golden sunlight spraying on it. Now it's blood sunset red uh, light that seems to be on it you know, as the story gets darker and darker. Yeah, but it's yellow in the, in the next couple of pages. And the other thing, too, is how would, they, how would they differentiate the word boxes from Kovacs and Long if they did do word, if they did do word boxes? Uh, I think it's his mask. That's it. That might be my own little fantasy world, but that's that's what I'm thinking. I wouldn't rule it out. Actually, that's our last panel of the of the interrogation room at that point. Uh, no, there is one yeah. more. No, there is there is one more. Right, and it's yellow. It also looks like maybe the that's when the guard comes in. Maybe the 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 main light has been turned back on. They're not just working by the spotlight or whatever they're doing on. There's a lot of ways around that. I guess and it's a new interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Then moving on to, to really twenty two, twenty three. I mean, there's not a whole lot, you know, going on other than, you know, just this dramatic build up. It's like, you know, you, you see the guy you know, the guy coming home and he's getting closer and closer and um you know, it's just you're waiting for it. You know it's gonna happen. And it's just, you know, they're building a whole page of, you know, you waiting for something to happen. It's funny, the dogs, it says, hello, Fred, Barney, I'm home. Those are his dogs. They're both named after... Flintstones. <laughs> Good show. <laughs> kind of like this weird fascination with childhood from this guy, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're not eating a Bronto burger in the backyard, that's for sure. Ugh. Yeah. And then, you know, we see again, it, you know, on 23, where, you know, he comes crashing through the 
or the, you know, he throws a dog, his, his dog through the, through the window. And we, we seem to see a lot of either crashing through, you know, in these issues, you know, whether it's comedian, you know, flying through a plate glass window or Rorschach jumping out of, you know, you know, plates of startling people, um, you know, or whatnot. And it's like I almost get like a Sopranos, or not a Sopranos, a, a, a Godfather vibe out of this. You know, this is, this is the horse head on the, you know, on the bed. Well, actually, there's a Sopranos kind of like a in on a 27 that's coming up for us. But then he hits him, you know, he hits him from both ends. You know, he throws one dog through the one window and he's facing him and then he, you know, and then, you know, boom, he throws the other dog, um, you know, on his, you know, at his back coming from the other other side, you know, the whole time. You know, right away he says, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything, I swear. And it's like, why would... You know, again, if you're guilt, you know, if you're not guilty, why would the first thing you assume be, I haven't done anything? It's like, you know, if nobody's accused you of doing anything yet, the, your first response is, I haven't done anything. It's true. My daughter, my four-year-old, when you say Ashley, she says nothing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's when the that's when the dad alarm goes off and says, oh, I better start, you know, checking to make sure nothing's been flushed down the toilet or the sinks aren't <laughs> yeah. stopped or. Nothing's in the, you know, the peanut butter sandwiches in the, you know, DVD player, that kind of thing. <laughs> now, you see, I don't understand. I, mean, I know we're a week removed from this conversation, but Brad should love this issue because on 25, <laughs> Rorschach chains, chains up the skeeve down uh, into the bowels here of this dress shop, gives him a hacksaw, and says, if you can't make it out in time, you can always try sawing through your handcuffs. In other words, this is like this death trap from the Saw movies that we know he he loves so much. And he throws yeah. kerosene all over the guy. In other words, I'm going to light you on fire. However, if you can saw your arms off, uh, <laughs> please feel free to get up and leave. This yeah, is it's crazy. the same at the, uh, the end of Mad Max, too, the original Mad Max. He does the yep, same yep. thing. But yeah, it's just a great moment. It's like, well, you know, you might be able to get away, but you know, probably not. You know, so this guy's last, you know, his dying act is going to be sawing his own hand off. To no avail. We have the uh, Lawrence Arabia strike the match uh, <laughs> panel on panel number six of that too. So then he goes across the street and he watches it burn. Now, Russ, was this what you were talking about from the Keenak panel that he was just yeah. watching something burn across the street? Yeah, I wasn't sure if timing wise if this matched up, but yeah, that's what I was curious is if if when they show him across the street, you know, back on. Was it 19, I think? No, it was... Um, 15. 15. That building he's watching burn, is that is that, that building? Well, I think in the one issue with um, the comedian and Night Owl, where the comedian was talking about how Rorschach had gone crazy during that kidnapping case a few years ago. That was when the Keen Act was going on. Uh, so this, I think this all happened a few years before that. On 15, Russ, it's the Gunga Diner right next to it. Okay, so okay, so obviously I just, I, I just looked myself. So yeah, I was, I was just curious. But that doesn't mean that. Hey, that doesn't mean he's not remembering. You know. Well, and and there's something when we get into the prose piece that makes me think that maybe there's been more time elapsed on this than we think. Uh, but but maybe not. There's something going on. I mean, it's obviously the building's obviously on fire, and right above the panel on 15, you have the comedian setting the setting that uh, little board they have up on fire. Yeah. 
Maybe that's when uh, he and the comedian, or wait, when he and Dan were policing the streets and everybody was with the broken bottles and stuff. Or maybe that's when he was policing the one side of town when Dan and the comedian were in the owl ship. Remember how they said Rorschach's taking care of blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe yeah. that's when the riots were. Could be. Could be. And there's something in the prose piece that when we get to that, it kind of alludes to, to a timing thing, but but we'll see. And he, it, it's funny how, you know, looking on 26th, you know, it's almost like this this stuff at the top where he starts talking, it's almost like he feels like the fire, you know, he's been cleansed by the fire. It's like, he's, you know, the fire's been lit. and Like a baptism of fire? Yeah, almost. It says, um, live our lives lacking anything better to do, um, devise reason later. Born from oblivion, bear children, hellbound as our, as ourselves, go into oblivion. There's nothing else. So it's like it's, you know, you just, you know, as all this happens, it's just like, you know, it, we're just in an endless cycle and we just, you know, go on and do our own thing. And, and, and then, he, you know, he makes allusions to the whole inkblot thing. It's all open their interpretation. Yeah, what was that quote from King Lear? Merrily we creep along, you know, we're just kind of going through the motions here. Meanwhile, there are obviously bigger bigger things at stake that Rorschach's victim to. This quote-unquote mask killer that he believes is out there. Like he says on panel four, it's kind of equating the, the Rorschach inkblot to his own personal philosophy, you know. Existence is random, has no pattern save what we imagine after staring at it too long, no meaning save what we choose to impose. Which is, you know, the same deal with the Rorschach uh, ink blot. You look at it. I mean, you're imposing your own vision upon it. It's just an ink blot, but you know, to you, it could look like a butterfly. To this guy, it could look like a car, etc. But for as much, see, and here's the and here's snag number two with me. For as much as this whole ink blot thing is open to interpretation, he's very much like we said earlier, living in a black and white world of right and wrong. So what I don't understand is how does absolute absolute right, absolute wrong fit in with whatever you think it is works, you know, this kind of like uh, uh, pragmatic kind of philosophy that he can, is it he can pick and choose this? Because this really ties in with issue 12, guys. Yeah, he sees his, says he's free to scrawl his own design on this morally blank world. So maybe he's the ink on the the page of white. I'm I'm not sure, um, but he's definitely. I see what you're saying. I mean, he definitely has a knowledge of black and white, right and wrong. I mean, he knows what a criminal is. He knows, you know. What I, so I totally see what you're saying there. But here he's saying that basically, I mean, everything is meaningless, and we're the only ones that cause the evil in the world. I mean, it's not an outside force. It's us. It's pretty deep. Is that dinner party on twenty seven, Adam? What you were talking about about the Sopranos? Yeah. What do you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you know, part of the subplot with Doctor Melfi, the the, yeah. the therapist, is that she what she has a therapist herself, right? Yes. Doctor um, Elliot Kupferberg, Peter Bogdanovich, the director. Yes. But the and the hitch is, it is. It's like who watches the Watchmen? Actually, now that I think about it. Because whenever they have dinner or family get-togethers or her husband with the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League, Defense League, excuse me, um, you know, it's always like, well, geez, why, how, so how's your resident psychopath? Because they want to experience what, she, what, what Malcolm is, excuse me, and what Dr. Melfi is without the consequences. But when they hear it, 
what happens? His wife gets completely grossed out, or well, upset more more so, I would say. But <laughs> and, and look what the one guy does. He laughs. He says, "Oh, I bet they had her tied up really good." Like even in mixed company, even in friend friendly company, even in polite company. That's oh man. I mean, I know we rag on each other and give each other a hard time, but. I don't think anybody's crossed the line like that just yet. This guy's a sleaze. Maybe Rorschach is right. These are the ones that he needs to see uh, that, that he'll look up and say no, right? He won't, he won't help them. This guy, is, he's a real turkey. Well, and it, you know, it, it, it's funny. I think it's a funny coincidence, and, you know, especially since, you know, more being British, the guy, you know, what is the first thing this guy wants to know about? He wants to know about um, or him and his wife. They, they want to know if anything weird or... You know, you know. Basically, they want all the sleazy details. And what's this guy's name? His name is Randy. I'm looking like these people are, you know, they're the uh, the elite, the socialites. You know, they they look down on on people like Rorschach as pe- mm-hmm. men for their own amusement. And that's exactly how this guy's taking this. Oh, really? A kidnapping? Ooh, tell us more about it. And, you know, was was she uh, tied up? You know, looking for for the detail like that for his own amusement, and not realizing or caring or understanding that one of his peers could be affected on a different level than than this. So it should all just be an academic exercise to him with no real consequence to them because they're above all that. Now here and here's like this is kinda of like a sub question here. You know like how sometimes you just can't help but take your work home with you? You know what I mean? Like that this is why I can never be like in the medical field or maybe even law enforcement or something like that. But even when I have those bad days at work and I hear one of those, <laughs> an experience, I guess, is even better. One of these just, I mean, heart-wrenching, heart-breaking, you know, really what are ultimately <laughs> origin stories for these kids is that, you know, we talk about it when we're eating dinner or afterwards when we're on the couch and light, light, lounging around. And the response is, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. John, have you ever had stuff like that when you, you just can't help but bring your work home with you? Or I learned, do you just not talk about it? Well, you know I learned I, I did when I was teaching regular high school kids, and when I ended up dealing with kids that are locked up, I had to shut it off. I can't. I have no. You know, I, I have very few good stories at this point, so I don't. I don't bring it home. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that's the answer. I just uh, I leave it there. Yeah, I mean, to to a similar degree, I mean. In the, in the fire service, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I, luckily, thank God, I haven't been, you know, a part of or involved in anything too horrific. I mean, I've, I've seen some, I've been a, been a part of some pretty, you know, uh, some things that weren't pleasant. And of course, you know, when you're standing out somebody's house that's burned, you know, down to a, to a cinder, it's, you know, it definitely puts a new perspective on things. But for me, because my my wife is, she's a police dispatcher, so we kind of. You know, there's a lot of times where she, you know, she's the one that ends up sending me out on a call. So, you know, for me, it's a little different. You know, that aspect of my quote work, even though you know it's not, I don't get paid for it. I, you know, I can bring home and we can talk about it because it's something that you know she's involved in one half of it. But um, which sometimes I think makes it easier because you know you can kind of get it out, you know, and get it off your chest. And, so. and don't you think that's why the comedian went to Moloch? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I just um just before we we started uh talking about this I I had to step away for a minute so I'll erase this if you guys have already covered it but did you guys talk about how um on in panel 3 on 27 you have the silhouette of the two people fa- you know together 
And then on the next panel on 27, now you have the doctor and his wife facing in opposite directions? No, no. that was So they've clearly, like, they've hit break point with this whole, with his obsession and bringing his work home, as we've been talking about a little bit now. Look yeah. what's overseeing the whole, all the scenes. It's a clock. It's in the foreground. Well, and you, what's interesting on panel three is you see the silhouette, and what do you see? You know, you see Bernie, the, the guy that's reading the, the Black Freighter, He's throwing away an empty wrapper of that count, uh, wrapper of that candy meltdowns. So again, you know the image, you know, is is meant to be caused by a nuclear blast, and you know, you know, what do we see being tossed in front of it? Was is a candy called meltdown, whose symbol is a, a big atomic blast, and it's purple. We kind of go to a little purple motif on the last page too. You go from the meltdowns wrappers purple, the doctor's jacket at dinner is purple. And then on the last page, the you know the the bottle of uh, pills that he takes is purple, and those last shots of the card are uh, the the uh, Rorschach. Well, test look who's causing everything. It's a man in purple. John, this is where I talked earlier that you can kind of see the V at the bottom. I mean, I've got the absolute, so it's a little blown up, but right right under the word balloon on that bottle of pills, you can almost see that V on the bottle. Yep. You know, right above where it says caution, do not exceed, you know, stated dose. Yeah, I'd go with that. That airship's flying by. I'm back on 27 again, but those shots of the dinner table on the bottom of the page, that airship's flying by past the buildings. Yeah. One of the things I noticed, and it shows up again on, on 28, but also um, on 27 in the background, we see, the again, the, the radiation symbol, the fallout shelter symbol. And I don't know, have you guys read the Starman stuff, the DC Starman stuff? I've read uh, Volume 1. I've got, I've got the Omnibus, and I, I just finished reading it. And it, it's, and, you know, maybe part of it is I'm, I'm you know, getting Watchmen fever. Or I'm, you know, I see Watchmen everywhere. But there's a lot of things in that book, like from a visual style, you know, in a, in a um, you know, the, the, the art style, it's that more, you know, golden agey kind of simplistic style to it that, um, Tony Harris draws, and um, there's a page on there where where they're, the characters are standing in front and behind them, and there's a there's a building with a big you know fallout shelter symbol on it. So I just I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. There, there's been a couple things I've noticed in there that kind of pay homage to to Watchmen. I was just gonna say it's interesting to contrast his uh, point of view here on the last page compared to his point of view on the first page. He can't even get to that optimistic person that he was before he, you know, came into contact with Rorschach. He tries looking at the Rorschach ink plot and tries to make it, you know, something happy or something positive, but he's unable to. Even even before right before that, the in panel three, without even having to think about it, he can get to, very easily get to the point where next week I could be putting her into a garbage sack, placing her outside for collection. Like he's already at a place with with where Rorschach was or is. That he, he can deal with his wife in such a way, or at least in concept, without without any trouble. Yeah, when you look at you know his internal monologue, um, you know journal, whatever you want to call it, you know like on panel three it says, "Why do we argue? Life's so fragile. A successful virus clinging to a speck of mud." I mean, it, if you would have put that at the beginning of the book, I mean, and put Warshak's journal around it, you wouldn't even know the difference. So again, we go from, you know. A clear, thought-out, you know, well-written, you know, entry for for Doctor Long 
to at the end, it's almost, again, like that stream of consciousness, um, sometimes sentence fragment speak that, that he's become. And then his quote, you know, the horror of, the horror is this. In the end, it is simply a picture of empty, meaningless, meaningless blackness. And then the panels, you know, we are alone, there's nothing else. And the panels just fade out into black. And get the Friedrich Nietzsche quote of, battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Which I always, I always love that quote. So that's the, the main issue. Then we get into the, the pros. And the pros for this one is, is really interesting. Because this is where, you know, it's, it's not really taken from a book or from an excerpt or, you know, anything like that. This is just kind of random, you know, like a police file. This is basically, this is the file of Rorschach that, that the doctor's been carrying around with him. Is that yeah, how I'm looking yeah. at this? Yeah, because you definitely you see the coffee ring around. You, you know, you see all the, you know, these other, you know, on the papers and, and things like that. But it's, it's interesting that when you look at the, at the, you know, quote, official record of him, how it differs from, um, you know, what, what really happened. I mean, some things it, it ex- explains in a little more detail and other things it gets, it gets wrong. Um, one of the most interesting things I found out about, I found with this is, um, we find that the cop, you know, w- w- one of the things we thought of in, in the last issue when he took the, the grappling gun and shot the cop in the chest was, is that, you know, he killed him. You know, he's pretty much dead right there. Um, and we find here that, no, he's, he's a, he has a shattered sternum, but he, you know, he's still alive, but in critical condition. So, um, you know, whether that cop ends up making it or not, yet, yet to be seen, but, you know, kind of, uh, quantifies whether, you know, that he, he did not die at the end of, of five, at least. I really love the, uh, the inventory of what's in his pockets. Uh, at the bottom yeah. of that first first page, yeah, one battery powered flashlight, five individually wrapped cubes of uh, sweet chariot chewing sugar, uh, one map of New York Underground subway system dated 1968 with recent alterations drawn in with red ballpoint pen, and he also has the nostalgia cologne that we've seen so many times. Do you catch the guy that that abducted the girl, the the, the little six year old girl? His last name was Furness, F U R N I S S, and he was uh, burned alive. Yeah, that, that 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 was one of the things. And see, here here's where this is where the timeline for me is is interesting. Um, it said he's not denied two other murders attributed to him. Those of Gerald Anthony Grice, unemployed in the summer of '75, and a wanted multiple rapist Harvey Charles Furness, two years later in the summer of '77, immediately following the passage of the Keene Act in the law. And this Grace was where, the uh, Grace was the kidnapper. He was the one who, who uh, fed the little girl to the dogs. Okay. Furnace, okay. Furnace was the guy earlier when they're talking about the Keen Act, and they show the guy with the broken neck, and it says never. You know, and they say most of them went out of business. I think it was in the first or second issue. I have to go back and look. But that's, that's the rapist. Oh. That's right when the Keen Act being passed. So Grice is the kidnapper, and Furnace is the multiple rapist. Gotcha. Okay. See, that's what had me confused on time, timeline-wise, is why I thought that that it was the guy that his name was Furnace and he was the guy that he burned you know he basically burned up in the in the apartment but no that makes perfect sense Jim that that's the guy that had you know his neck twisted around with the sign that said never it's funny how the, the, if that's the case though then they don't you know they don't say Gerald Anthony Grice it says unemployed not you know kidnapper you know child kidnapper or anything like that it's almost like the cops never put it together you know Rorschach put it together and figured out who it was that killed 
that kid, but nobody else ever did. Yeah, Rorschach burned all the evidence down. Yeah, that one, and the rest of it was eaten. I like the fact then, that, the, uh, that he lived uh, growing up at the Charlton home. That's a nice little nod there to the um, the Charlton characters they were originally that they were originally supposed to be. Yeah, that and the um, that's where they're it, from. Yeah, they talk about a an un, you know it says a report of an unprovoked assault. You know, basically because when the boys attacked him, he never you know he never gave his side of the story or explained anything. They automatically assumed it was unprovoked. You know, whereas what really happened, what you know, was we saw earlier. But you know, the official record is, you know, that he just you know went crazy and you know attacked these two older boys for you know absolutely no reason. The other thing that's interesting when you read these prose pages are, I mean, this is obviously meant to be a type, you know, a page that was you know run through a typewriter, spacing mistakes and all that kind of stuff strewn out through through the through these doc all these documents that are that are in here. And then, of course, that his mother, you know, all the time he was in the home, his mother never came and visited him, which isn't surprising, you know, given what we know about her. There's another uh, There's another uh, reference to the uh, atomic bomb, too, with the, I like President Truman, the way Dad would have wanted me to. He dropped the atom bomb on Japan and saved millions of lives. Yeah, he's, he's created this whole um, I, idealized version of his father. You know, he... He he he's convinced that the reason his father left was because his mother was the way she was, and that you know his father was you know really a good man, and you know you know he must have you know went off to the war and you know fought the Nazis, and you know he's got this real heroic um, you know idealized image of, of who his father was, you know contrasted with you know how horrible his mother was. Yeah, it makes sense he would come up with a whole dream life for his father, considering how crappy his childhood was. Yeah. And then, we, of course, we get the, his second essay, which is on, you know, about a dream where he talks about, you know, basically dreaming about what he, you know, what he witnessed his mother doing, you know, while he was a child and, and her profession. And it's funny, you look at the doctor's notes on, the, on that last page on the prose, and it says, um, first interview with Kovacs is Friday afternoon, looking forward to it. You know, again, so it sets up the fact that, you know, going into this thing, he really thought this was going to be a, you know, a shining moment for his career and that he was going to be able to, you know, help this, this guy out and really do something. So as we saw, it didn't quite turn out that way. Anybody else have anything on the, on the pro side of things? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Yep. Yep. And uh, the clock at the end says it's uh, six minutes to midnight. So halfway guys. Congratulations guys. We've made it halfway. Yep. I do have a few issue six comments that, that, um, that we can read. Um, or that I'll, that I'll read here. Yeah, let it rip. The guys on the boards are tearing it up earlier. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. First comment's from Caliban. It says, back in the 80s, I read a comment by a reviewer about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing Pog issue, which basically said that that was the issue where he realized that Moore was really going to push the envelope. Well, Watchman number 6 was when I realized that this was going to break out of the envelope altogether. This issue is the heart of darkness at the center of Watchmen. The story where we realize that this isn't going to end well. Powerful writing, great images, and the best optimistic character in the whole series experiences the full dread of being Rorschach. That's true because how could how could you make Rorschach happy? You know how could the, how could this guy who we literally jumped into the story with, like when he jumped in the comedian's apartment? I mean, he can't. I mean, I just don't think he could be satisfied. And then Calvin finishes it up and says, my favorite issue. Next comment is from Cri- Crippled Avenger. 
says, I can't flip and wait for this cast, as it is by far my favorite part of the whole book. And then Filthy McMonkey says, yeah, like most of us here, I think this is the episode I'd most like to be part of. This is the one that strips it all down and shows us why Rorschach is the man and what's underneath is just an act. Kovacs can't handle the world as it is. Only Rorschach is strong enough. Having cleansed away all his weakness and fire and blood, leaving only the absolutes, good and evil. Thanks, guys, for the comments. We really appreciate those. Okay, everyone, that's going to be it for tonight. I would like to thank you for joining us again. As always, you can reach us at thecomicforums.com on the Half Hour Wasted Forum. You can email us at comments at legionofdudes.com. We are really appreciative of, of any comments that we get. We'd like to hear from you. And once again, please check out a halfhourwasted.com. If by some way you're um, listening to us but not listening to Brad and Frank at Half Hour Wasted, please do that. Tune in next Thursday for our Craven's Last Hunt episode. We'll be doing a one-shot on that Spider-Man book, and we will have Brad Milo of the famous Half Hour Wasted podcast to help us out with that. So we're looking forward to that. I'm going to leave you with some guar for the road. So thanks to Darth BX again for the comments, and see you guys soon. Good night, faithful listeners. Excellent. Good night. Excelsior! Excelsior!